EdChoice's Director of State Research and Policy Analysis, Drew Cat here. We're back with a new EdChoice chat. In this episode, we're talking poverty, gentrification, and, yes, pollution, as it relates to America's K-12 education system with Dr. Bartley Danielson, an Associate Professor of Business Management at North Carolina State University and the founder of Environmentalists for Effective Education. Dr. Danielson, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I'm fascinated by your latest project with EdChoice, a three-part blog series. Tell us, what is this series about, and what inspired you? Well, the the series is uh, essentially about how school choice programs can be used to improve uh, cities and communities, and, uh, and the impact that that has on uh, the way cities are structured, uh, including commuting patterns and sprawl, uh, and, uh, and how we might be able to use school choice in order to actually create better, in, better outcomes for cities and, uh, and improve the environment more generally. Uh, in terms of what inspired this, the, the research I do focuses on how school choice programs impact economic development, property values, and where families choose to live. And I had published several academic papers describing the impact of charter schools and voucher programs on communities. And in general, our research finds that choice programs are good for neighborhoods and communities. These effects, the effect of the program on the community, we refer economists call these positive externalities. Uh, but while I was doing a presentation to a local civic group uh, a couple of years ago, the question came up, how would I devise a school choice program if creating better neighborhoods was actually the main goal? In other words, the positive externalities that we see in communities um, are happening even though creating better communities isn't actually the goal. Creating, you know, creating school opportunities is the goal. So what would create, how might we create a program uh, that had as its main goal bringing jobs to poor areas, cutting crime rates in those areas, reducing economic segregation in cities? What would that program look like? So I wrote a policy piece where I tried to take what we had learned about these externalities and use those insights to design a model school choice program that would be an economic development catalyst. Shortly after that policy piece was published, it drew some criticism from education professors who see the world differently than I do, uh, meaning that they, they, uh, my, they seem to have a perspective of, I would say, public school administrators. They had several criticisms, and I thought some of them are worthy of a response, and I appreciate Ed Choice's offer to serve as a platform for a series of blogs that essentially examine uh, uh, the not just the the core idea, but what some of these criticisms were and allow me to provide a response to those. Yeah, and I know from our last interview uh, where we discussed your report, Renewing Our Cities, a case study on school choice's role in urban renewal, that you come to this issue from a different perspective than most education reformers. Why is that? And does that come into play in this new series? Uh, well, yes, it does. I, I, I'm a I'm a business professor, not an education policy professor. 
there have been a lot of there's been a lot of great work done on how school choice reforms impact results inside of schools, uh, student outcomes, test outcomes, that sort of thing. Um, my impression is that choice is better for child outcomes, but that's not my area of expertise. My interest is in the question, how do choice programs impact things outside the school? And this is clearly an underexamined question. Now, keep in mind, the typical person spends 3% of their life in schools. Uh, it's a really important 3%. School quality has a big impact on quality of life. But the other 97% of life is spent outside the schools, and the quality of life in that 97% of time is, it, that's spent in neighborhoods is clearly important in, in overall quality of life, too. So growing up in a high-poverty neighborhood is apparently even worse for children than attending a high-poverty school. But traditional school assignment systems are a big driver of neighborhood segregation and, 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 and the creation of areas of concentrated poverty. Currently, the best way to avoid the wrong school is to avoid the wrong neighborhood. And uh, there should be better ways of, of uh, attacking those problems. Yeah, and along those lines, the first piece in this series examines how zip code assignment in public schools have contributed, as you said, to concentrated poverty. Can you expand on that phenomenon and its effects so far? Well, with only a couple of exceptions, students are assigned to schools based on where they live. So zip code assignment is a shorthand for that, but what really matters is how the post is and how the post office draws boundaries, but how school district boundaries are drawn. Politicians draw school boundary lines. Sometimes these lines get redrawn, but whatever Wherever the, the lines are today, they exist because politicians put them there at some point. Sometimes a court might step in to help draw the lines, but drawing the line is only the first step in a process that impacts neighborhoods. So politicians draw these lines, and then families begin to vote with their feet, which means those who can afford to choose the side of the line that has better schools. And even if schools start out uh, uh, apparently identical, um, if people begin to perceive that one of the side of the line has better schools, then over time, people who want better schools will end up on that side of the line, and the quality of life across those artificial boundaries, those school district boundaries, changes the schools and family income levels and poverty rates and crime rates on either side of the line become drastically different. Um, and uh, one side of the line just becomes healthier and the other side becomes more economically disadvantaged. Uh, if you can afford to live on the good side of the line, um, you do. If you can't, you get left behind, not just geographically, but also economically and socially. Uh, so it's, it's a destructive economic segregation process that arises, and it is, in a sense, a natural process. Um, and I mean that in that people are biologically driven to do what's in the best interest of their child. And, uh, and doing what's in the best interest of their child doesn't always lead to an outcome that's in the best interest of the community as a whole. Uh, if you have a system 
that where people's individual best interest isn't aligned with the community's best interest, you're going to get some bad outcomes. Yeah, very interesting. Can you talk a little about spatial sorting and how it's applied here or how it can be applied potentially in other areas of study outside education? Well, the, 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 the term spatial sorting, as I use it, is this idea of people uh, choosing where to live uh, based upon the desire to, to uh, be in a better school. So you actually move to a different space if, uh, if your goal is to uh, live in an area that has better schools. And we can see this in census data, areas that have bad schools um, or, or you know, below average schools uh, tend to have uh, a shortage of five to nine-year-olds living in the area relative to the number of zero to four-year-olds. So people actually are either picking up and moving and leaving the, the areas with worse schools uh, when their kids hit school age, or they won't move into those areas when they uh, are, um, uh, when, if they have children of school age and they're moving to a particular city. Uh, I, I didn't coin that term spatial sorting. Uh, the idea has been around since a journal article by a guy named uh, Tebow in 1954. So the idea has been around for a while. In academic circles, it's called Tebow sorting instead of spatial sorting. But but spatial sorting, I think, better describes it for for most of us. Uh, I didn't originate that term either, but I can't tell you exactly where the term first was developed. Yeah. So what solution do you propose to combat this spatial sorting in terms of education and schools? And are there any real-world examples that show it can work? Well, in terms of the combating this sorting, you, you can't stop spatial sorting unless you eliminate the feature that people are, are referencing to sort on. Uh, the nice thing about school choice programs uh, is that uh, they separate the choice of school from the choice of neighborhood. Uh, so if you can do that, there's no reason for people to, to spatially sort into different neighborhoods because of schools. Um, we know that, that people are leaving those areas with weaker assigned schools when their children hit school age. If you give middle-income people in those areas a way to stay, many of them will, and you end up with better neighborhoods, better grocery stores, for example. Rich people don't live in food deserts. If you can keep a middle class from abandoning poor areas when their children hit school age, you end up with a better neighborhood that has a grocery store. That store might employ 100 people. And not only that, poor people get to go to the grocery uh, the same way that the rest of the community does. And that, that's just one example. Um, we observe uh, that areas that have so Vermont is, is an example. It's got over 200 school districts. 93 of them don't have a public school. And uh, uh, the one places that don't have a public school have school choice programs. Uh, those areas have more five to nine-year-olds moving into them uh, than the, the places with assigned schools. And uh, property values are higher in the places with school choice programs, suggesting more economic activity. Um, they're particularly higher than, in, in particular, they're higher than places that have relatively weak assigned schools. Um, but Vermont's not the only place that has been examined. Paris has a really interesting 
example there. Um, so there, there's pretty good evidence that school choice is valuable, that it's valuable to families, and that they will choose where they live, they will choose places where they have choices if that's an option. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense, and it's awesome to hear about that positive externality related to property values coming out of Vermont's town tuitioning program. Uh, so, Bart, what do you think has stopped policymakers from tapping uh, these types of solutions then? Shouldn't there be consensus on this based on the research and data by now? Well, I suspect that the primary um, uh, sticking point here is that all over the country, and at the local level, we have two separate parallel governments. There's a school board that runs the local schools, and then that's one branch of government. And then there's the mayor and city council that run everything else. Um, they're in charge of economic activity in the city, and they're in charge of economic development. Now, every mayor knows that schools are the biggest economic development lever around. But historically, there wasn't anything they could do about schools because that's a completely different branch of government. That's the school board. They couldn't touch that school lever. Now, school choice programs are giving mayors, in many cases, charter schools, for example, are giving mayors and city councils a way to grab the lever, that economic development lever that schools are. Um, the, the, until those existed, you obviously couldn't, they, they had nothing to grab until charter schools existed. I think we probably need legislation that gives mayors and city councils even more latitude to uh, adopt school choice programs and to promote school choice programs uh, because it's good for the city. Yeah, and this sounds like a somewhat similar issue we face with our own research on school choice programs and in terms of widespread applicability and buy-in. So how exactly do proponents and opponents of the solutions that you propose think differently about these issues of poverty and education? What's the rub? Well, the, the, the sort of education uh, policy people uh, tend to think of, uh, tend to think the way I would say education bureaucrats think. They are the consumers of their policy re research for the most part. So education bureaucrats think of concentrated poverty and segregation as problems that need to be fixed inside the school system. They think of concentrated poverty in the community as something that just makes their job harder. Uh, it makes it harder to assign the right mix of children to individual schools if the community itself is uh, economically segregated or racially segregated. They don't see the assignment process itself as one that actually creates concentrated poverty in neighborhoods. School administrators need to fix next year's school problems or they suffer various consequences. Neighborhoods don't change over a one-year period of time. They change over a long period of time as people move in and out. So the spatial sorting takes a lot of time. School district administrators can't worry uh, about the fact that their short-term fixes in the schools are creating long-term problems in the community. They're working in the system as it exists now. 
they can't change that. Um, and so people in that sort of education world tend to see problems as ones that are, are confined to within the walls of the school. Uh, but to the extent we can decouple school assignments from neighborhood selection, that zip code uh, assignment problem, um, to the extent that we have more school choice, we end up creating a new reality for school administrators to work in so that they can do their job without harming the city as they do it. Mm. Yeah, and that actually opens up another really important issue. We hear more and more from critics that school choice won't create economic development and somehow also that there will be so much development, they mean gentrification, that it will hurt impoverished families. What's your take on that way of thinking? Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard that criticism too uh, in, uh, in, in a report that uh, where the same authors uh, at, at two points made the same the same point. They said school choice won't make neighborhoods better, and it's also going to lead to gentrification. And those are completely contradictory criticisms. So they can't both be correct. They, it can't be that they won't work, and they'll also uh, lead to gentrification. But but then the people who are, are are making these contradictory arguments seem to have already concluded that they don't want school choice choice programs anyway, and any argument will do even if the arguments themselves are contradictory. Um, the, the evidence is that, that, that these programs will work, they do work, and if we optimize them, you know, specifically with a goal of being job creation tools and, and anti, uh, anti-concentrated poverty tools, uh, they probably will work better than anything else we've used. That, that's my belief. Yeah, and lots of critics say, ignore school choice and focus on fixing housing policy. That will solve concentrated poverty, ultimately diversifying and improving our public schools. Is that enough? Um, well, t- today the, the housing program that is aimed at improving school outcomes for poor children is to move poor families out of poor neighborhoods and into middle-income neighborhoods. Um, that is, uh, is referred to as the Moving to Opportunity Program. That is a relatively expensive um, uh, program because, uh, by definition, when you move people into higher wealth areas, it's costly to subsidize rent and, and, and that sort of thing in those neighborhoods. But it should be obvious that if you're moving some poor children to high-income neighborhoods, right, because being in a better neighborhood makes their outcomes better, then it should also be obvious that allowing higher income neighbors to stay in poor neighborhoods when their children hit school age would be a good idea too. Um, We don't just have to try to create diversity in wealthy areas. We could create more diverse neighborhoods in poor areas, and more diverse means that that, that there are more jobs in the area and, and more economic opportunity. Uh, we know that people are cho- leaving these neighborhoods when kids hit school age. We need to give them a way to stay, and they'll improve the neighborhood. Yeah, so I'm taking away that gentrification is good or bad, depending on whom you ask. So why do you think we are seeing school choice critics raise gentrification as a negative issue? 
Well, the term gentrification just sounds bad. Uh, if you're, you know, it, and let's recognize that there are winners and losers when you have a neighborhood that begins to gentrify. If you're poor and you're forced out by rising rents, it's definitely bad for you. Uh, but most poor people live in areas that aren't gentrifying at all. They would be, uh, benefit enormously from improving neighborhood conditions. They need access to jobs, they need less crime in the neighborhood. Promising these neighborhoods that you're going to fight gentrification by fighting against school choice won't win you many friends in those neighborhoods. Although some public school administrators might like to believe that that's a good anti-poverty strategy, it's not. And it will just keep families trapped in high poverty neighborhoods. Um, the fact is, where gentrification is concerned, if families are able to stay in gentrifying neighborhoods, if poor families are able to stay in gentrifying neighborhoods, they find the neighborhood improvement to be something they really like. All of life gets better for them. Um, it only becomes a problem at the extremes, and most neighborhoods aren't anywhere close to the extremes. They are most poor neighborhoods are stuck in 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 concentrated poverty. Very well said. Uh, before we sign off, is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, do you have any new research on the horizon? Um, well, the, the uh, um, I guess the thing I would add is. Uh, I'd point to our, our uh, organization, uh, Environmentalists for Effective Education. Um, most people don't think of urban school choice as a an environmental issue, but the entire structure of our cities, where people pick up and leave and go to the suburbs when their children hit five years old, uh, creates sort of you know, donut cities where. Uh, people have to make long commutes out of the suburbs and into the city. There are a lot of negative externalities. We have to build more roads. These cars create a lot of air pollution, CO2 emissions. Um, so, uh, you know, while we haven't really discussed the environmental element of it, it's important that people understand this is a big deal on the environmental side. Uh, it's probably the biggest environmental issue in the United States today. And um, and it's one that can be solved at relatively low cost if we just bring the right solutions to it. Um, in terms of other research, uh, we're, we're in the process right now of working on a, a paper for a real estate journal that's focused on uh, gender differences when you have school choice, how, how it affects um, families with males versus female children. Uh, one of the schools that uh, we've studied previously in a downtown area noted that when they when they were moving into that area, their concern was that uh, that families with girls wouldn't send their children, their daughters, to school in that neighborhood. And uh, and in fact, when we they in fact did attract girls into into the school, but when we monitor where the families that have children attending that school uh, lived and where they where they moved over time one of the things we we do observe is that the families with male children were more willing to move into the neighborhood around that that uh, that school than families with uh, with young girls uh, there was a statistical difference and uh, and that may say something about 
um, when cities begin to use school choice to promote uh, economic activity, it may say something about which families are most likely to to move uh, to be willing to move into an area once they put their children in, say, a charter school or a or a, a private school in a in, a, in an urban area. Hmm. Excellent. Well, your work always gets us thinking about ed reform differently, Bart. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us today. It has been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Have a good day. And there you have it. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss another EdChoice chat. And if you'd like to read Dr. Danielson's blog series, which is full of data and links to more research and resources, check out the description of this podcast for links. Finally, to read his original research, visit www.edchoice.org slash renewing our cities. For all of us at EdChoice, I'm Drew Cat. Thanks for listening and take care.